Welcome to our next episode of the Five Moments of Need Performance Matters series. This is Bob Mosier, one of the many co-hosts you'll meet throughout this series. So friends, are you trying to learn more about the Five Moments of Need? Maybe how to design for them, implement for them, measure them and even sell them as an approach to your enterprise. Well, in the Performance Matters series, we will help you better understand the theory and best practices behind this powerful methodology and offer proven ways to put the five moments of need into practice. Okay, friends, welcome back to another Performance Matters podcast. Bob Mosier here, one of your co-hosts of this event. We so appreciate your listening and uh, tuning in. And as always, please let us know how we're doing. Love to hear feedback, ideas, topics in this wonderful world of five moments of performance support. Today, we are hosting yet another Experience Matters podcast, our most popular series, and I am honored to have a longtime friend and a hero of mine, and I think a remarkable uh, learning leader in our industry, uh, Brandon Carson, who is now the Vice President, I want to say this right, Brandon, Learning and Leadership Partner, I love that, at Walmart. Brandon, welcome. Thank you, Bob. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, of course, my friend, I know this will be a well-listened to podcast, my friend. So I don't do the bio thing. I don't read from a thing. You know, it kind of helps us tell the story, right? So you, although you're currently at a remarkable organization, just starting there, we'll talk about that. You have been a part of also some other remarkable organizations as their learning leaders. So tell us, Brandon, your journey in learning and how you've arrived at this remarkable new role. Well, uh, thanks, Bob. It it has been a long, strange trip. Uh, (laughs) It is now for all of us. Yeah, I'm now a quarter century in L&D, wow. but, you know, every moment's been rewarding. I fell into this accidentally, so I never planned this for my career, but it's it's been a blast. Primarily just because it's about building capability. I transitioned from designing college textbooks hmm. into interactive media, which then got me into corporate training because we put together some what we called interactive CD-ROMs for those wow. textbooks that I was helping to design. And that's when I got the box that was on the shelf. There were two boxes on the shelf at work. One said authorware and one said director. <laughs> and a colleague next to me grabbed the director box, which just left the authorware box for me. Yeah. So talk about falling into by accident. So I got the authorware box. And then he and I really, we worked together to build this whole CD-ROM supplement for one of our top selling biology books. So he built all the animations and I built the structure Wow. That, you know, that authorware allows you to do so that people could go through it and stuff like that. So to this day, I miss authorware and it was a great development tool. So I started on that end, just developing in tools like authorware. And, and I, you know, just the other day, me and Dr. Allen were on a Zoom call like this, and we were just reminiscing about our glory days with authorware. But I did get to the point not too long in development mode, if you will, where I realized I don't really have a programming mind. And I truly believe what Bill Gates said once about programming. He said, either you have it or you don't. There's not a lot of gray area there. So I began then to focus more on instructional design and then over time took on more responsibility and eventually moved into learning leadership. But I've been fortunate to really work with some great committed teams and companies over the years. I've learned so much on this journey. So if you're lucky to have meaningful work, you've hit the jackpot. 
that's mm. the number one. And I feel like I've won that jackpot many times over. So Yeah, well, it's remarkable. And I, I love the pivot on meaningful work. We were talking before we turned the recording on that we've both been involved in some meaningful work, you yeah. know, good, good, bad, or indifferent, right? We, as, as if we're lifelong learners, we realize that uh, failure has as many stories to teach us and tell as success, right? We, we've hit, we both had our share of those. Yes. My friend, you are the, probably the most digitally competent person I know in, in my life. I mean, you, you, you our, our podcast was a little delayed so that you could do what? Well, okay. I have to admit today is Apple release day. There you go. And I'm like emailing Bob. I'm like, Bob, the Apple store opens like right at the top <laughs> of the hour. Can we come on five minutes after? Cause I got to get, sadly, I was on a safari in South Africa for two Apple, Apple iPhone releases <laughs> ago, two years ago, I was on a safari in South Africa. We were out in the bush and I, was hanging my iPhone out of the side of the people <laughs> we were in trying to do my order, my pre-order for the iPhone then as well. I, I follow you closely to see, you know, you're the early adapters that I so appreciate in my life. That leads me to my next question. I've seen you do many things. I've seen you author a few things in your time, but I, I think this was your hot, your sweet spot, my friend. You just released the L&D playbook for the digital age. You are a digital advocate. You're digitally literate and you have a wonderful learning mind. And obviously, technology has to and should play a remarkable role in L&D. I've always kind of argued that L&D does struggle with that sometimes, frankly, and, and other things we can talk a bit about as we go deeper. But what inspired you, Brandon, to, to take on that project? And, and what were your learnings for our listeners? Well, first of all, thank you, because you wrote the foreword to the book. I remember <laughs> reaching out to you and holding my breath. Uh, so you were gracious enough to do that. But the main reason I wrote the book is really comes from my feeling that our practice, the practice of corporate learning and development, we're at an inflection point, I think. Mm. And for over half a century, we've been stewards of performance, more, more than half a century. We have developed the systems, the infrastructure that's necessary to operationalize what John Hagel refers to as scalable efficiency. And I really would stress to your listeners, look up John Hagel's scalable efficiency. It's a great mm. video. He's got a video on it. But that's the optimization of human performance within the constraints of a replicable work system. And a scalable efficiency work model catapulted us into unheard of prosperity, and it lifted so many of us into new economic categories. But as we transitioned from the industrial age to this age, the information age, the digital age, we have been behind the curve in evolving our work environments and our labor models. Mm. And now with the digital age taking us into this rapid acceleration We've seen an increase. It's amazing the speed and complexity, right, that we've all been going through, especially over the last couple of years. And so fundamentally, how work gets done has changed and is changing. So quickly, that scalable efficiency work model shows its vulnerabilities. And a lot of us are seeing that over this last year and a half with these, what I like to call the great reassessment. Some people mm -hmm. are saying the great resignation, where during the COVID era, people have started reevaluating what they want from work and their labor, right? Mm -hmm. and so this is bringing more pressure to the business and the workforce. So L&D needs a call to action and we need to rescope, we need to restructure, we need to reposition and fundamentally rethink our operating model because we need to be the catalyst in this new age of work to help create that capability that we now need, right? So not to sound too dramatic about it, but I hoped that the book could spark a conversation within our practice about what our new opportunity is and our new responsibility, you mm. know, coming out of that. Candidly, I started this book before COVID 
I started writing it right as COVID unleashed. And I remember Justin, who was my, at ATD Press, he was kind of working with me on this. He pinged me and he's like, okay, you want to weave in, you know, the pandemic and its impact. And I'm like, sure, but it's like unfolding in real time. Yeah. And so it took a couple of months of just writing, you know, but I was able to weave in some of this, what now is looking, you know, we're all looking at is like, okay, wait a minute. L&D is all of a sudden becoming more visible and we're on center stage now because so many uh, functions within the companies, including the CEO, the C-suite folks have come to us with heightened expectations right during this time. So that's kind of the genesis of the book. And it's a little contrarian because it's asking us in our practice to rethink everything we're doing, our operating model. You know, it's funny in, in a, a number of these interviews with friends that, you know, you know, as well, that we've done these experience matters things. And I've asked the classic, you know, what's the pandemic done to L&D? And like you just alluded to, a lot of folks have said, look, it, it's just been an accelerator. It's not like the, the things we are dealing with now are not pandemic specific. Pandemic is forcing us to address things that L&D maybe should have been involved in all along, been the leader in all along, the catalyst and so on. And like you said, I I talked to another person I interviewed recently and they said that I had only heard the CEO speak on company meetings. You know, two weeks into this thing, I got a phone call from him. Mm. By the way, it wasn't about, I want five classes on anything. (laughs) It was, you know, it was, we got it. We got a performance problems here. And and how do you L&D help me? And it was a wake up call for them, right? A, A remarkable opportunity. But a wake-up call. So if I may focus a bit in this time that we're in, in our next question, what do you think are the challenges and opportunities that L&D faces and that are in front of us right now? Yeah, we have quite a few challenges, but candidly, we also have some great opportunities. Yes, I agree. We've shown over the last year that we can indeed pivot our practices to lead through crisis. I mean, I was at an airline when this unfolded, Mm. and I wouldn't recommend that to anyone. (laughs) Some odd reason during a pandemic, people don't want to get in a metal tube really close (laughs) together for some strange reason. But that was a year of leading through crisis, you know, And, and we had to pivot to focus more on ensuring business continuity. And we, at the airline, we had a heightened visibility, just like you're talking about, because we had to ensure that business continuity. We were yeah. a, an essential service to the nation, right? And so, and none of us had a playbook for this uh, mm. pandemic. But as I've talked to colleagues across many industries, I've repeatedly heard stories about how L&D kicked in to provide programs, resources, and tools to keep the workforce going, keep customers safe. We rapidly transitioned to training modalities. I mean, all of us were doing virtual overnight practically, and we do a lot of on-the-job training in the airline. And so that was a challenge too, to how do we do that? You know, how do we position that? Because we couldn't be close together. So I would say in February, 2020, not one CEO was thinking that having an entirely distributed work team. And in 30 days, almost every company was figuring out how to work in a distributed manner but also how to empower the workforce to work differently. Yep. You know, and it's an amazing rep- representation of people coming together, you know, and leveraging technology and new process to keep the world operating. I mean, that's really what happened. And yeah. L&D was a key component in that. But as we move forward, you know, we now face a complete rethinking of work itself. And we're kind of in the middle of this conversation. And after almost two years of new ways of working, People are questioning and they're feeling empowered to engage in conversations about how they want to work moving forward. And so I like to call this the great reassessment because we're pausing and reflecting on work and everyone's having these conversations. HR and L&D 
are really the catalyst in those conversations. And so in a lot of ways, it's going to end up being the great reawakening as well, mm, you know, to like these that. kind of histrionic terms or whatever. But we had a once in a century global pandemic, you know, at least we hope so. It interrupted our value systems. It interrupted our work models. And, you know, we were great because we showed what humanity is able to do. Usually the average time for new vaccine development is 10 to 15 years, Bob. Mm-hmm. Look what happened. We, within a year, we came out with a vaccine in record time. Humanity has never seen that before, mm. you know? And so we've had a rare opportunity to take stock of things. And this great reawakening, I think, will bring us a change, not only in how the work gets done, but what we want work itself to be. And so if you look at how humans have worked for most of time, I was reading this the other day and it really hit me. Azima Zar, who has a new book out called Exponential, and he does a great newsletter. He, was, he actually went down this list of, wait a minute, most humans have always worked either in or near their homes throughout time. That's how we have mostly worked. It was just since that sort of scalable efficiency, that Fordism work model in the last yeah. century that really moved us into this kind of mass factory based, you know, the industrial revolution, that kind of stuff. Family farms, artisans, you know, dressmakers, butchers, weavers, you know, they always kind of worked at home. And that's how we have done most of our work throughout human history. So it's only recent that we've been in this model that Hegel talks about with scalable efficiency. It's not like this is most of humanity has worked this way. And so now what we're doing is like, wait a minute, we have to rethink because now we have all this technology that lets you be anywhere and you can almost do anything. And so I think the conversation has really shifted. I think the next decade, the roaring 20s, whatever we want to call it, will bring more change to the workplace than the last six decades. And this challenges L&D. And I think there's twofold. How do we ensure a hybrid dispersed workforce has the necessary skills to execute on that strategy? And secondly, how do we ensure that the company can not only attract the best talent, Hmm. but literally, this is what I was telling my team the other day, We have to go create the workforce we need because we can't just expect to find this talent out there. And so we need to recalibrate and realize that we have to get into the community, create that workforce to future-proof our business. And now we have the world as our talent marketplace because of technology, right? Public education is not preparing enough people for these new types of jobs. So we've got to be proactive. And that's where L&D's huge challenge, but opportunity is, is how do you create that workforce of the future? Well, you know, you're speaking to the workflow, right? I mean, it's, exactly. uh, it's as volatile as it's ever been. You know, I, and I love the way you're going. And what I've heard from others is that we are being asked to help redefine that and help organizations understand what it is. The rapid workflow analysis side of our work that for years I swam upstream against, all of a sudden leaders are coming down going, look, we just, if you can just help us get our arms around what we're doing. And yeah, we'd love some kind of, you know, upskilling option around that. Uh, this is this is a brave new world for us, you know. And, and Brandon, you've been a remarkable advocate of the five moments as long as I've known you. We go back a number of your organizations you've been a, a part of, and in each you've done a remarkable job at trying to raise the awareness and so on around all that. How does that framework speak to you? How does it align to your book and what you've talked about and some of those opportunities you just talked about and challenges for L and D? Great question. I was first turned on to moments of need years ago when I was doing some consulting work with a company called Teradata. Hmm. And they were undergoing a wholesale transformation of their L&D practice. This was probably 2008, 2000, 
mm. seven, wow. maybe seven yeah. or eight. Yeah. Uh, might've been a little later than that, but they were undergoing a wholesale transformation to really provide more relevant and timely performance support to their workforce. A lot of their workforce were working on machines and would be out in the field and doing things kind of, you know, in that flow, like they'd have a machine, some kind of technology system that they needed to work on there, right? And the workplace. What they were doing is they were undergoing an authentic inventory of their L&D team's value proposition. Mm. And in doing so, they were reallocating their resources to implement how they built capability across their business. And what struck me then was how the model that you and Khan have built allowed their organization to implement a flexible and adaptable learning ecosystem. And it was rooted in the realization that people get their work done in many different ways. Hmm. And in doing so, they needed help in different ways as they were working. And so it's revolutionary in its simplicity, Bob. <laughs> and so I latched on 100% to five moments of need during my work with Teradata. They introduced me to it. I was literally brought in because I had been working with Tiagi in a similar vein on how to bring in game mechanics and make mm -hmm. learning more engaging and interesting, right? And to me, the five moments of need exposes an inconvenient truth to many of us in corporate learning. It requires us to know deeply how the work gets done. Mm -hmm. And many of us are not in an operating model that's conducive to that, quite frankly. That. Yeah. It forces us to get out from behind our cubicles, our computer screens, and into the work. And that's a lot of what Hegel says. So in my first book, I actually interviewed Hegel. And he told me, he's like, I can guarantee you, if you get into the work and you spend some, a decent amount of time there, what you'll find is that the majority of what you're training your workforce on is not what they're facing day to day in their job. Mm. And I would challenge all of us to get up from behind our computers and get into the work environment. And what I'm asking us to do, though, in some respects, is to move beyond the overlay of performance support in the work and to focus also on changing the work environment so that it becomes more conducive to learning. We must reimagine the work systems and environments as we transition away from scalable efficiency to scalable learning. Every company, you know, Ed, Ed at Delta told us this in 20, early 2020. He said, we, we have to be a learning company. And so that's what I've, I've brought five moments of need to every organization I've worked with because it is, like I said, it's revolutionary in its simplicity. It addresses, you know, every performer's true moment of need. Its strategy will bring you closer to that ability to make sure that there's harmonized support models across how the work gets done. It will not work, and this is what Khan pushes us on, it will not work if you don't know how the work gets done. Yeah. Brandon, I've always been impressed as I've watched you move throughout your career because when you start these jobs and things and I check in on you and we connect and stuff, you're always like, I'm like, so what are you doing? You're like, well, I'm climbing in a plane right now. <laughs> um, when we met you at, at Home Depot, your understanding of the orange apron, right? And what they did, if I may be honest, I don't always see that in every L&D leader. Now, in, in, in their defense, many are put in a position where they frankly are not maybe allowed to align. They're dismissed in some ways, right? And, mm -hmm. and, and, and you always went right at the work. I believe that you intimately knew what the organization did and therefore as a learning leader, could have an impact on the performance of doing those things. It's a reorientation, Brandon, that I don't see in yeah. every leader. 
No, but the catalyst was the five moments of need. And, you know, it's not just because I'm on your podcast, Bob. That was the first catalyst I had in my career was meeting Tiagi mm. and realizing that play is inherent, that for some odd reason, we shut that valve off in our brains when we become adults. And Tiagi challenged me. He's like, let's open this back up, right? It's like play is an inherent human trait. How can we appropriately bring this into how we learn? Because that's how we learn as kids, right? And then the second catalyst was this, mm. the five moments of need. And you combine these elements to then build this learning ecosystem that's very human oriented. Yep. And it actually plays out more in this world of technology because technology is kind of not the key issue here. Yep. It's keeping that humanity in the work and bringing that forward in the models that we adapt and adopt for learning. You, you've got to know how the work gets done and how the work is. And now it's even more important because yep. it's changing so much. And we need a way to analyze that, right? I mean, it, that's been the thing. And, and I love the technology deal. You know, one of my favorite expressions is, you know, methodology begets technology, right? And in my early career, I flipped those. I'll be honest. I was a dolly of the day, whatever expo or keynote speaker showed me something cool. You know, I ran at those things like, okay, this technology is the second coming of education. And then I, and then I fell flat on my face because that's not the business that we're in. That is a hammer to a nail, right? Yeah. You know, and I, I think it's important and you've always, you're, you always really do a good job of being very pragmatic about that alignment and the order and the priority and the, the job we are called to do first and foremost. So a couple of questions here, Brandon, if you don't mind. Lessons learned on your part and challenges that you think we face in doing that. Because you, you've been at it more than many people that listen to the podcast are just journeying into this. Yeah. You know, I've actually applied five moments of need in small situations. I mean, Teradata was pretty focused and kind of small if you think about scale. Scale is, you know, it's all contextual, right? Uh, mm -hmm. But I've also applied it in scaled organizations. The, the biggest challenge I've found is not in the actual implementation of learning and flow of work. It's not the technology like you and I've just been talking about. It's more the cultural change yeah. that's necessary because it requires companies to completely rethink their perspective on talent development. I love that. And I think right now we're at that inflection point, right? A lot that. of us are on center stage with this. And more often than not, this will bring about conversations about the employee experience. And if you look at job architectures and you reframe what actual productivity means to the bottom line, looking at investigating career mobility, equitable opportunity across your organization, and thinking about even the emotional well-being, which is a topic we almost talk about Huge. now yeah. of our workforce. Those are all parts of what L&D needs to be focused on now. Most of us are focused on that. And transitioning the company from 100% focus on optimal output, you know, that scalable efficiency model, to a shared responsibility to provide value to both the customer and the workforce, that's becoming our primary kind of remit now when you think about it. So in to operationalize this, we have to assess the environment in which we ask people to work. And in this matter, we have to question, like I was talking about earlier, all the digital systems we build, the physical design of the workplace. Yep. If you look at how Steve Jobs designed Apple Park, he was laser focused on creating a workplace or work environment that fostered that serendipitous interaction, if you will, that between people who were not on the same work teams would have reason to connect, you know, mm -hmm. and his belief was that these interactions would bring forward more empathy, a deeper understanding of the life cycle of products and services. And I think empathy is the most profound characteristic we can ask our workforce or help our workforce to tap into, mm -hmm. because this brings to life an understanding 
of the core values that the culture intends to foster. And then if we're more empathetic, we open ourselves up to more, you know, to different perspectives. Mm-hmm. And that's central. And so I think that's a tenant, a core tenant of the digital age. And that has nothing to do with technology, folks. It's like that is really all your company culture. And you're being asked to reevaluate that now in this sort of great reawakening, right? I believe the five moments of need is a model that can enable this change. I think you operationalize it with grace and humility for your mm. workforce. This is not about the technology. Love that. At all. Because Khan's even shown me ways in which you can use paper. You know, you do not have to be cutting edge technology to implement five moments of need. Yeah. You know, now granted, technology can help you in lots of different ways, especially in that scaled situation. But this is first a cultural, a dynamic cultural shift that's necessary. You know, and my friend, that smacked me right in the face when I got into this early on, right? And I, I was transformed, use that word a lot, but I was really transformed professionally. It was If I go back to a pivot in my 38 years at this, outside of leaving public education, which probably was the first, but when I saw this, I was transformed in, in the moment and I couldn't wait to bring it to the industry, right? Could All my friends, all my connections over all the years, all the angst we talked about, I want to see at the table, all those kinds of things. I'm like, look, this is the, this is the pivot. And, I, and we talked about this before we started the recording. I ran headlong into the culture of L&D yeah. and the culture in the company of learning um, that is not the most risk averse, maybe not the most excited about change. So an, an empathy, my goodness, couldn't our world use more of that? Yes, we definitely can. And I love what you're saying, because I was told by a senior leader in my last organization, he came forward and he's like, Brandon, you've got the ideas. And I was talking about moments of need, you know, all this kind of across those moments of need for for the frontline workforce. He's like, you've got the ideas, but be bolder. Yeah. Tell us what we need to do. There are so many of your business leaders out there who just need to know what they need to do. Yeah, we L and D, the, the leaders in L and D, we've got to be bold and let them know what they need to do, and that's also part of that grace and humility. Well, it's funny. I get a lot. You know, I want to stop being an order taker. You know, my L and D department's become an order taker, and my favorite answer is, well, then, then stop taking orders. You know, it's it, you know, it, right. I mean, and I find change management as a discipline, right, that we're talking about here, being less risk averse and being a courageous leader, like I've seen you be your whole career is not always our DNA. And some of it is self-inflicted, right? In some ways. So friends, let's get to a couple of questions to wrap up. So you've got a learning leader like yourself out there listening to this. What are your recommendations around adoption of this thing to get started? Well, to your point, you have to fundamentally think about whether or not you're operating in a learning culture. If your company has democratized learning and sees learning as essential to its core value, then you're already where you need to be. If your company is still caught in that gray area of training as a transaction and that is something that workers need to just get done so they can get back to work, then you've got more work to do. Mm. And I do believe that L&D is the catalyst to whether or not the company can have or has a learning culture. You may have to build that mindset if it doesn't already exist. And Mm. that comes through identifying your value proposition and then communicating it. Like that leader told me, tell us what we need to do, right? Yeah. And that could take some time, let's be candid, but to drive transformation, you need a foundation on which to build. And if you try to just bring it without adapting the culture, it likely will fail. Yep. You alone won't change the culture, but this is where learning leaders need persistence. You know, it's got to be courageous that be bolder, right? 
And then you've got to, I'm not saying ask for permission. That's not what I'm saying. But you must put together the strategy and then tell the story. You've got to get, you know, all leaders have followers. Otherwise, you're not a leader, right? And so one of the hardest things to do is to convince business leaders that if you do this, then there will be this outcome. That's really hard because you're trying to project what may happen in the future. So it's best to wrap it in a story where you paint the picture of where you see the company going if this change is made. And again, it goes to it's it goes to just being able to put the strategy and the story together. Mm. And so wherever you are on that journey, you just have to be real intentional about how you want to get there. Leadership. It's it's about yeah. true leadership, right? So my favorite last question, particularly with a journey I know you've been on, my friend. I know we're we're getting into time here, so I apologize, but it's just been so rich as always. I loved it if I was 16 year old you know, what would I tell my 16 year old self story? I question, I just love that. Um, you know, Elliot and I, I, I was fortunate enough to interview him in part of his kind of heading into the next phase of his career. And, and it was my favorite question to ask people like you in my life, you know, who, who I think have followed such a rich journey and there's always lessons learned. What would you tell your younger self, Brandon? I love that. I love that. And I talk to myself a lot. I talk to my younger <laughs> self a lot, especially lately. I've had a few comments over the years that have kind of stuck with me. And one was told with me after a meeting with some key stakeholders, my boss pulled me aside and she offered this feedback. She said, if you don't come into the room with the answers already in your head, you'll go much further in gaining the insight you need to craft the correct solution. Mm -hmm. Basically, I was a little bit full of myself, right? And she was calling me out on it. And another comment came to me from a leader where she told me, choose wisely what your focus areas are and limit them so that you can get real things done that help people. And so this feedback helped me with one of the most important aspects of my professional life, which if I was talking to my 16 year old self, I would really push hard on to say is let go of the ego. And, mm -hmm. and that's really hard because I operated under the model that I was there to provide answers. Yep. You know, and so yep. I often failed to actively listen. And I have a tendency to never say no when people ask me to do things. So I would tell my younger self, listen more, talk less, and be real intentional about what I get involved in. Mm, I love that. <laughs> yeah, you know, digging into the workflow, I've always told Khan has been the most humbling thing for me because, you know, as, as a learning professional, I thought I knew, like you said, I thought our job was to say yes to every deliverable mm -hmm. and, and have the answer halfway through the question. And I thought I knew what the work to be done was. And darn it, we get asked a lot about, you know, how do you walk into a hospital and help them with this? You're not medical professionals because I don't pretend to be one. I'm there to facilitate the journey. Exactly. Right. And that's a very different shift for us. Right. It's a very different thing. Well, my friend, remarkable as always. Um, so, so inspired by these conversations. Can't thank you enough for what this will mean to the group that listens. And obviously, we all wish you the best of luck in your new journey and can't wait to hear more about the story. So thanks again. Thank my friend. you so much. Good talking to you, Bob. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for this episode of the Five Moments of Need Performance Matters series. We look forward to future conversations around how to best put the five moments of need into practice. We welcome your feedback and can be reached on Twitter using my Twitter handle at BMOSH, as well as our Five Moments of Need website, which is www.5momentsofneed.com. We hope you're finding these helpful and will subscribe to future episodes. Have a great day, friends.